Everyone's a cyclist before they're an athlete. Everyone just starts to ride bikes for fun. So for me, I just liked going out and exploring. Riding a bike, you see the world at this pace that when you're driving, you miss it. You know, you don't smell it. You don't, you know, you're not, you don't see what's going on. When you're running, like you can see it, but you don't cover a lot of ground. But when you're riding, you can really soak up a lot in a day. You can really feel what's going on and and you can stop for, you know, pick up an apple or something. And so that was what I got out of it. And I found like, if you're training and you're staring at your power meter and you're doing your workout and your coach and all this stuff, like at some point it can start to feel like work if you're not careful. And so once in a while, like think about what got you into it and carve that out for yourself. Just today, go out and do what you feel like. Just go for a ride. It reinvigorates everything. and. And at some point like that, that definitely like extended my training and, and it made life a lot easier. And, and at some point, that's all I'm going to do. That's Phil Gaiman this week on the Rich Roll Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody. How you guys doing? What's happening? How are you? My name is Rich Roll. This is my podcast. Welcome to it. The show where each week I go deep, I get intimate, I go down the rabbit hole with all manner of movers and shakers and inspiring people and wise personalities across a wide spectrum of everything from wellness to fitness, entrepreneurship, spirituality, addiction, recovery, sports, literature, medicine, entertainment. And I bring you these people, I engage these people, I share these stories and this wisdom all as a means to help you and me, of course. Uh, as well, just become a little bit better, a little more self-actualized. The idea, of course, is to help all of us unlock and unleash our best, most authentic self. Uh, I know that sounds a little bit pithy and trite, um, but it's kind of a cool aspiration. So come on, you guys, just go with it. Today, I sit down uh, with former American professional road racing cyclist, Phil Gaiman. So who is Phil? Phil is a former American professional cyclist. Didn't I just say that? Uh, Phil has competed on several teams across the course of his career, domestic teams like Jelly Belly, Bissell, Optum Kelly Benefit, as well as international UCI teams, the big teams like Garmin Sharp, which he uh, raced with in 2014, and more recently, Cannondale Draypack in 2016, before he retired at the end of this year. Uh, Phil is also an author. He's written a couple books, Pro Cycling on $10 a Day, very entertaining read, uh, Ask a Pro, and he's got a brand new book. It's called Draft Animals, Living the Pro Cycling Dream Once in a While, parenthetical, once in a while. Uh, that book comes out October 10th, and it's available for pre-order now. Check it out. We recorded this podcast quite some time ago, several months ago, and I apologize for the delay to all you Phil fans out there in getting this out to you guys in a more timely fashion. I just had a backlog and all kinds of other stuff, as you may or may not know, that has been uh, occupying my time. But in the meantime, Phil sent me an advanced copy of this new book, and although I've only begun to check it out and get into it, it's a really fun and entertaining look behind the scenes on what it's really like to ride pro on the world tour at cycling's highest level. Uh, it's about Phil's childhood dream and, and what happened to him when he uh, actually achieved it, all are which subjects that we explore at length today. Uh, Phil is also an active blogger who occasionally writes for Velo News and other cycling publications. He hosts his own podcast, the Peloton Brief podcast. 
and he is the founder of Phil's Cookie Fondo, which is a 100-mile, I think it's a 100-mile cycling adventure that shows off Malibu's great climbs, climbs I know well, and uh, apparently involves gourmet cookies. Uh, it takes place on October 15th, and you can check it out and sign up at philsfondo.com. In any event, Phil has spent the better part of the last year pursuing this campaign that he calls the worst retirement ever, in which he is systematically going after and collecting Strava KOMs, which for people that aren't on Strava or don't really know what it is, it's basically uh, attempting to clock the fastest ever recorded times on every prestigious climbing uh, hill uh, incline that he can find, both domestic and abroad, all the famous climbs. Uh, and this was inspired due to him becoming upset that a bunch of previously banned riders held so many of these KOMs, King of the Mountain uh, honors, and he was inspired to reclaim them for the sake of clean sport. And that's a challenge that he has been documenting as a cool series of fun videos on YouTube. I'll put a link up to the show notes uh, so you can check that out as well. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel. But what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers 
to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful. And recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation, a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most, mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. All right, let's talk about Phil. Let's talk about the conversation that we had. It was really cool. It was really fun. We covered a ton of ground. We talk about his childhood, growing up obese, if you can believe that. How do you go from obese to professional cyclist? It's a crazy story. It's about how he first started riding bikes to lose weight and the career that followed. And then we go behind the scenes on the insular, mysterious world of pro cycling, all the misconceptions of what being a pro rider actually means, what it's like, the true lack of glamour that is involved. Uh, and that's all covered in his book, Pro Cycling on $10 a day book. Um, we also cover cycling sordid history with doping, Phil's refusals to use throughout his career despite being surrounded uh, by this culture, and what it means to him to, to be clean and to stay clean uh, within that culture. We talk about his Strava mission to scrub all of these Strava records, uh, to clean them up uh, and erase these banned riders from the record boards. But at its core, this is really a conversation that demystifies one of the world's most unique professional sports through the eyes of somebody who actually lived through it. And I will say that, you know, talking about doping and cycling is it's really tricky. It's very difficult. It's a very emotional subject for a lot of people, for a lot of reasons, both obvious and obscure. And of course, I have opinions on it, but I'm also very connected with the fact that my opinions, these opinions are formed from the sidelines. You know, I'm not a professional cyclist. I never was. And personally, I think that unless you were actually there, unless you were in the position that these athletes found themselves, continue to find themselves, that we need to uh, perhaps uh, not be so quick to judge because we all like to think that we would make the right choice, but you know, that's, that's theory that is projection. So it was really great to explore this hot button with somebody who was actually there, who actually walked through it, rode his bike through it, lived through it. Plus he's super funny. Uh, it was a really entertaining talk, like I said, so let's not waste any time. Let's talk to Phil. 
Let's do it. All right. Good to see you, Phil. Thanks, Rich. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming out. I'm super stoked uh, to talk to you. You're a super interesting guy and excited to uh, delve into the world of professional cycling and pro beer experience and and uh, everything that uh, everything that you've done and that you're doing now. Uh, I, I kind of see you like you're you're a pretty interesting dude for a lot of reasons, but um, I think some of them have to do, well, first of all, like your experience in pro cycling is interesting to me because, because, uh, you share it so much, you're a writer, you know, and mm-hmm. you have a very kind of comedic flair with your writing and how you kind of share your experience and what it was like to be part of that world. And I'm fascinated by, you know, the subculture of professional cycling. And I think, you know, we hear a lot from the top pros, you know, the, the, the superstars that, you know, the names that you always hear about, right. but you're kind of a guy who is a journeyman kind of yeoman dude, right? Like that you were on a lot of different teams, you know, yeah. r- racing with a lot of different guys. And I think for the average human being, if you tell them I'm a professional cyclist, they're just immediately think like you're racing the tour de France every year. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I was very much on the fringe of all that. Right. So maybe, uh, maybe I think it would be worth kind of just, uh, hearing a little bit about your career and your perspective on the sport. Sure. Um, I kind of got a late start, I guess that would be, that'd be like my first setback or my first, uh, hurdle. Um, so I started racing in college, kind of like mostly started riding to lose weight, racing in college just as a part of a club thing. Um, had you been an athlete before that, like in high school and stuff uh, or I was the fat goalie in youth soccer. So no, really, <laughs> you were not fat. I was, I was exactly obese at like age 12, like 30% really? body fat, which like, isn't that huge, but it was, it was going to go one direction or the other. And, and I was kind of like, I, I did something about it before, before it got too late. Wow. Sort of how I saw it. So Growing, yeah. You grew up in the, you grew up in like Georgia, right? Yeah. Atlanta. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, what? Just eating Cheetos as a kid, or like Coca Cola? <laughs> <laughs> right, like the city of Atlanta is owned by Coca Cola. So there's like uh-huh. vending machine in high school. You like pick up a, a bottle before between classes, and then suddenly you've got the the Beatus. Uh, was was a lot of people's experience, but uh huh. Um, yeah, like, so I, like, I, I kind of want to be a fat. That. You don't. I don't want to be a fat kid. Yeah, I looked out at the mirror at, at some point. I looked down. I was like, there's this big roll of fat, and I was like. I don't want to like, go through life like that. Uh-huh. Um, so like the, as, as like a child would before I had any concept of like health or fitness, I kind of just like ate one meal a day and rode my bike a lot. Uh-huh. And at 16, I guess I could survive that. Right. Um, and I then, mean, just for perspective right now, you're like, how tall are you? I'm six one, like 150 pounds. Uh, right. on the like no, now 50. I'm like gross skinny. Now like yeah. I'm, it's the other way. I'm still gross with my shirt off, uh-huh. but it's not because I'm fat. <laughs> the teenage boy professional cycling look. Right. Yeah. Um, so so that was that was kind of how I got started was just to lose weight. And then I go to college. I went to University of Florida mm-hmm. and um, there was, I didn't know anybody, you know, new state, new school. And, and I joined the cycling club just to make friends. I was like, I like riding bikes. I just lost a bunch of weight and uh ride with them all winter and then their their whole thing is racing the collegiate racing scene um and i i jump into that and i won my first races and i was like oh this is a thing how long before you won your first race it was my first race your, you won but your it, very first race yeah so there's like lower categories and stuff and yeah so here's like a bunch of people who the the lower categories are kind of meant for people who who work or, or whatever who are just starting out and here's a guy who's like been training full-time for six months because i'm in college 
So it's plenty of time. And I just, I, I loved it so much. I just did all the training and right. basically I was training like a pro cause I had time and I just kind of shot through the ranks and, and it was, it, it captivated me and, and hit it. Kidnapped me, I guess is a better term for, uh -huh. for the next decade. Was there a moment where you realized like, hey man, like I could be like, I might be good enough to, to go all the way with this. I was always kind of a one step at a time person. Kind of like when the, the first category is category five, I was like, you know, I think I could be a cat four. And then I do that. And then, and then each time the, the first time I kind of thought I could be a pro would be like my, my third year racing. I sort of just fall in now. And now I'm like doing races against pros. I'm an amateur and uh, there was this one race called Univest in Pennsylvania that all the European like development teams come over for. Mm -hmm. And and my team was sort of lucky to be invited. And and somehow like I just held on to the front guys and finished debatably fourth or seventh, depending on how bad they screwed up the results. It was right. one of those. That's kind of cycling. like a breaking away moment, right? Like, oh, the Europeans are yeah, here, sort right? of, like, sort of. Uh -huh. um, and there was eventually, in a different way, a, a pump in my spokes. Of at the end, like the results were all messed up. So I still don't know how I finished. <laughs> I know I was either fourth or seventh and there's, there's a debate and I don't care. Uh -huh. um, but either way, it was kind of like, uh, uh, oh, you can hang with these guys thing. And I was 21. Right. And, and riding in Gainesville, I mean, that's pretty flat, right? So dead flat. Yeah. So yeah. not a lot of climbing experience. No. Or like a lot of crits and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. I didn't, I didn't know I was a climber until like my second year racing. I didn't know there was a thing like a big ring. <laughs> right. <laughs> I didn't know uh -huh. there was a little ring to climb in. Um, I thought I was like a time trialist and I was kind of good. And then, uh, we, we got up to like, I travel a little bit and I was like, Oh, that's my thing. Okay. Mountains. Right. Interesting. So how does it work? Like when you show promise or prowess as a young person in the sport, like does the sort of national organization reach out to you and develop you? Or like, what is the process of sort of cultivating or grooming somebody who's in your position to then take it to the next level? Um, in, in my position, I, I think it was, it was all kind of like self-cultivated The there is now it's a lot better Then there were kind of development teams, but I was a little bit on the older side, a little bit on the later side. Um, so there's like, there was a national program, but they're kind of like, oh, you're, you're 20 and everybody here has been national champions since they were 12. Mm -hmm. So, so I kind of had no luck there. So I got on some good kind of amateur development teams, but um, now there's more of a program. There's a few kind of professional teams that, that look for the young talent and, and find them. Mm -hmm. Um, the time that I started, I didn't really know it was kind of the, the, the post, uh, EPO bubble, right. Where there's all these scandals and just the money was kind of running away from the sport. So well, there's a lot of teams in general, right? So you're kind of stepping into this world, right? As it's kind of beginning to crumble around. Yeah, you. exactly. <laughs> yeah, the way, the way yeah. I explained it is like, I'm climbing up a ladder and it's like being chopped from underneath me and it's falling down. Uh -huh. That was, that was how it, that's how it was looking back at the time. You're just like, you know, shoving coal in the engine and, and going for it. Uh-huh. And so what was the first pro team that you wrote for? Um, so I, I got on a pro team my second year and then that when one kind of second year away. in college, second year racing. Yes. And also second year. College. Oh, wow. So, so you're, you're in college and you're racing professionally. Yeah. But professional cycling is kind of like, it's, it's a, it's, it wasn't, it's not full time and you're not really getting paid uh -huh. uh, for the most part at that level, like kind of the minor league sort of level, the American stuff. So explain like the tiers of teams that exist because sure. there's the, you know, you hear about all that, you see the teams racing at the Tour de France and you mm -hmm. just sort of think, well, those are the teams. 
and and that's pretty much true. <laughs> the, uh, the but there's a whole other yeah. world of well, cycling. Like, you know, it's like that, the NBA, where like there's the NBA, and then but you can also play professionally in Europe. Mm-hmm. So I would say like, and some guy sometimes the best guys in Europe come over to the U.S., but it's not really like a like a minor leagues parallel exactly, but it sort of happens that way. So there's this whole world of racing in the U.S. on these. It's called continental teams. It's kind of the lower tier. Um, and, and once in a while, the best guy from there gets to go to the big leagues in Europe, which I eventually ended up there, but I sort of floundered in the, the American stuff, um, for, for many years of my career. And then at, at 27 was, I signed a contract to technically that was when I was like a real pro Uh for the first time. So I was on a pro team, but it doesn't, it's not right. And what team was that? Uh, that was Garmin Sharp. Right. So that was what year? That was 2014. 2014. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's a big, that's one of the big teams. That's, yeah. That's you know, it. That's, yeah. Like yep. that's big league. Right. Mm-hmm. But there's all these other, you, you were on, like, there's all these other teams like Jelly Belly exactly. and Kelly Benefits and yep. Bissell. And, you know, like it's, it's a bizarre world because the sponsors <laughs> are like, okay, they make vacuums and these people make, you know, basically jelly beans right. <laughs> you know, it's like this right. bizarre mishmash of weird companies that you know take a flyer and decide they're gonna uh, back these cycling teams it's kind of a weird business model yeah and that's like a big part of the problem yeah, i think, I think it's there's not, not working out right yeah it, it, i mean some in some cases it does and and i think for the most part like in europe it's the 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 industry sponsors are kind of floating it now. So when it was when it was big, when you know when Lance was hosting SNL, corporate sponsors wanted right. in, and and now it's kind of like Canada has a team, Trek has a team, and you sort of have to go that route. And and the money's there. It's just not it's not quite what it was. It's not uh, mm-hmm. it's not huge. In, in the U.S., it's a lot more passion. I think so. There's Mark Bissell is a cycling fan, so he was sort of looking for a way to sponsor cycling, mm-hmm. and and if it's and it eventually that when I was on that team, they were kind of like my my understanding was his board of directors was like, look, can we stop sinking all this money into cycling every year because it's right. not nobody we're not selling vacuums here. Yeah, like who's going to go out and buy their Bissell vacuum because they right. like this cyclist on this team? Plus, it's a huge risk because if a couple guys get busted. For EPO, then it just works across purposes with the whole retention, right. right? So you're asking them to, you know, sort of trust you on faith that that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I think when that all started to kind of crater uh, with all the scandals, that all those sponsors kind of went running for the hinterlands. That's I think that's exactly true. That's that's like that was sort of when I entered professional cycling was when all of them were seeing like there was a there was a team called Festina. And I forget which Tour de France mm-hmm. this was, but they were caught with all of the drugs. Right. And that's called the Festina scandal. And poor Festina's just trying to sell watches. Stuck in the middle of that. <laughs> and they're just like, the, yeah, so, like, we didn't we didn't give them the VPO. We're just trying to sell watches. <laughs> and forever it's the Festina this, scandal. That's, that's the name you know, of it. So they're associated yeah. with this black mark. On, yeah, it, it officially cost them on their reputation. I didn't even know that Festina made watches. They only make scandals. Know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when you're on Garmin Sharp, though, are you thinking like, I'm, I'm moving up? Like, like I'm, I'm headed to the Tour de France, or did you have like a sense of your ultimate potential? Were you, or, or did you kind of think like I'm, I'm hanging on, you know, I'm hanging on for dear life here? Um, I think, I think it was a little bit of both. I think like every, like every athlete, you can fool yourself. You know, you can think like, oh, it's only going up from here, and and whatever. And I think at that point, like, I mean, I had risen to that. I'd had like a very steady growth, and every year I was getting better. Um, and I hadn't really been exposed to the top of the top. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And then I and I went there and I got lucky and I won my first race on Garmin Sharp, which was which was amazing. I was like, oh, here we go. It's just gonna be I'm just gonna go all the way up there. I'll do the tour. Um, and then at some point, like reality punches you in the face and you sort of start training with the best guys in the world. You do some races and it's like, oh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, and then from there you kind of have to backtrack and say, all right, is it still worth it if I can't be the best? And what is my place in the sport? Um, and, and what's my role? Right. And, and during that period of time, I mean, I, I would assume like when you're riding for Garmin, you're getting paid. All right. Right. Uh, I was getting exactly all right. Yeah. So there's like the. The league minimum basically is fifty thousand uh, dollars, so that was my salary. That's right. that's what you get if you're you're twenty seven and, and barely good enough to be in there. Right, but on these these continental teams, like you know, it, it disabused me of the romantic notion <laughs> of, of what it's like to be a professional right. cyclist. I mean, you wrote a whole book on this, like sure. professional be a pro cyclist on ten dollars a day. Yeah, exactly. My so my first pro I mean, you're contract at the poverty level, like t- yeah. training all day and eating beans and rice or whatever. Yeah, that's 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 kind of that world. <laughs> yeah. It's like you have to find a way to support yourself. And that was sort of the first. So my salary, um, so the first year I got on a pro team in college, it was, uh, I got $8,000 and that was great because I was still in school and didn't really deserve anything. And then that team went away and I was amateur for two years. So no pay, they Uh they give you two bikes and and some clothes and (laughs) and good luck with yourself. Um, Uh and, and I'm driving across the country back and forth to get to any big race I can. Uh, and then I, on your own dime. Yeah. Do they reimburse you for your travel to races Um, and stuff? No, man, I made some prize money. (laughs) (laughs) They're like $100 for one of the next lap and I'm getting it. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a weird thing. Like I I see this with pro triathlon too. Like there's so many Ironmans now and it it takes so much to train, to to perform at the highest level in Ironman. There's only so many Ironmans you can do a year. And unless you're, you're winning big races, like you're barely scratching by and all of these races are in exotic venues that you have to get on a plane and travel to like i don't know how the numbers work like i don't know how they do it i i mean that's a big piece of the puzzle i can't speak to triathletes but but for me it was kind of like jelly belly my salary was two thousand dollars i did well that Mm -hmm. year and i got on a better team and my salary unlimited jelly beans Oh, so many jelly beans. I'm not even going to. Yeah. It was yeah. like 90 pounds. We'll give every you as many, as many jelly beans as you want. Like you should be well, happy. That's, that's been like a sustained sponsor of the sport is I think like they give out these little sample packs. I'd get 90 pounds every couple of months of just these like tiny little hundred calorie things. And then you have to give them away and it's fun to give them away. And then, uh, and everybody's happy that that sponsor has been the longest running in the U S mm-hmm. um, I, I guess easier to sell jelly beans than than uh than vacuum vacuums, but Bissell's still involved, just not like at the title level, right? Um, but but yeah, for me it was kind of like so two thousand dollars on Jelly Belly. Next year I got fifteen. Next year I got twenty. Then my salary was right. My contract was for twenty, but the team folded halfway through, so I got like thirteen, and <laughs> and then no paychecks the uh-huh. last like five months. It's so glamorous. Yeah, you're selling your bikes at the end of the year. You're. I mean, I ended up like working side jobs. I had like a little company on the side. I was selling like cycling clothing online. Mm-hmm. Um, Does I had everybody these... have to have like a side hustle? Basically, yeah. A lot of guys coach. That's that's a big yeah. thing. Um, but I mean, I had teammates who'd work construction in the off season. It's just like anything. It's it's a whole range. A lot of students. Right. A lot of people like pecking away at PhDs or something. It's almost like that. That was how 
like in Europe, that's the birth of the sport, right? It was very much like a blue collar right. occupation. Like these guys were like chimney sweeps and stuff. That yeah, would, exactly. That would race the Tour de France. And the original Tour de France, like there's no drafting, there's no teams. And like if you, if your bike breaks, like you're welding that thing back together. That's like part of the rules. Uh-huh. So yeah, hopefully, hopefully our, our sport kind of evolves more to that, but I'll, right. I'll be long gone by then. And our people, the other weird thing is that, is that you would imagine like the average person probably thinks that you're out riding with teammates all the time. And it's like mm-hmm. very much a team sport on a daily basis, but you live wherever you want. You do all basically your, tra- your the trainings on you, right? Like you're, you're, you're responsible for your own training. And most of that is like by yourself or just whatever, w- with whatever buddies you ha- happen to, you know, live around you. Right. Yes. And you only get together as a team for races or training camps like a couple times mm-hmm. a year. Yeah, that's that's pretty much true. And in Europe, like a lot of the pros kind of pocket in like one of four cities. So Luca, Italy, Girona. Nice, Monica and Girona. So if if you're on Garmin Sharp, like that almost come that contract almost comes in an apartment in Girona and, mm-hmm. and everybody ends up over there. So Cannondale now. Uh, so you end up training with What is it about Girona that everyone goes there? <laughs> well originally it was because they they pat so like all the U.S. postal guys, the the Lance crew, um, were were in were living in France, and then France passed laws that it was now criminal to to dope. So they were all like, "Oh, <laughs> so they went to Spain." And like Girona, it's uh-huh. a beautiful city. The roads are it's this medieval town, and there's like really nice roads. Um, but originally, like that was that was the source of that was when they migrated there and kind of established. Like Girona became the the base for English speaking pro cyclists and it mm-hmm. snowballed from there. Um, and the, the EPO factory shut down, but the, uh, you know, the castles and the Mediterranean and the crepes are still, still going hot. Right. Interesting. So, well, let's talk about clean sport. I mean, you mm-hmm. got a tattoo, right? Yep. You have a clean yeah, sport. Let me see that. Yep. Show it to me. Oh, that's cool. So <laughs> yeah. it's like a, it's like the fight club soap bar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's that. It says clean on it. That's interesting. So, um, you know, tell me about, Tell me about, uh, you know, doping culture from your perspective, like what you saw, what you experienced and, and, you know, the current state of what's going on. Right. The, I, fortunately, like I didn't see much, like I said, I came into it kind of at the tail end of it. There was, it, it was, I think when I started, it was still bad in Europe, but it was, it was, there was starting to be a fallout. There was starting to be like teams that marketed themselves as clean, um, and that kind of meant it. Mm-hmm. Um, but well, Garmin was founded on that principle, exactly. right? With Vauders exactly. and, and trying to clean everything up. And then they had a few like sort of bumps in the road, I think. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not easy. Yeah. Um, but so, so kind of when I started, it was, uh, it was, it was the tail end of that. And, and I didn't really realize like once a year, somebody I raced with would go positive. And, and you'd be like, oh man, <laughs> like, and would you be surprised or it, like, what is the, the sort of, um, you know, you hear a lot about like the sort of esprit de corps, like what, you know, people kind of like, if you're in the Peloton, you kind of know who's doing what, right. Like nobody's saying anything. And yeah, I think it, there was a point where, where, man, I, I'm 19 and like, I, I just, I missed, I was completely in all of that. And, but then you sort of figure it out. You're, you experience a few, like you're, I was, I was in this race in the Bahamas once and this like one kind of like older guy who was just this older amateur like he attacked the the breakaway there's six guys left and this guy goes and he's like out of sight immediately at twice our speed and i'm like 
I've never seen that before. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, and then he tests positive for human growth hormone six months later. I'm like, okay, that's what a dover looks mm-hmm. like. That's that's how I figured that out. But um, yeah, so kind of when I when I understood it, when you realized like the extent of of the doping, what was going on in Europe, and what my sport sort of had become, I was too deep in it to want to stop. Like I loved it. And, and I was kind of like committed as far as what I was doing with, with my athletic career. And, uh, and that was when I got the tattoo. I was real pissed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But you didn't, you, it wasn't like part of the culture that you kind of read about from the Lance era where you're seeing it or you know that certain teams are doing it and you kind of entered yeah. a little bit later. Not, yeah, not in the U.S. Fallen that away. was that was going on somewhere but but in the u.s like the teams i was on the age that i came up in like those guys wouldn't see it we just kind of had the tail end of it so a couple of the older guys a lot of times what would happen is like the older riders in in europe if they couldn't get a contract for whatever suspicions or something they'd come race in the u.s on on in that whole league Mm -hmm. so we'd have like the francisco mancebo would be one where like he was he was probably one of the guys in the the whole all the scandals and the blood bags and all this stuff and nobody wants to sign him so he ends up like just killing a bunch of like 23 year old american kids for five years and he's making six figures and we're like how do you beat this guy right so uh so when you look at the sport now i mean do you have a sense of how clean it is or or work that still needs to be done like do you think that the protocols that are in place right now are are sufficient and can you say with confidence that that people are racing clean or like how do you kind of think about it i think it's it's gotten way better um and like you don't know until you're there and i got there right so like i was racing at that level and i was like I won one race, but a lot of times, like, I could be in the pack and I'm doing my job and there's guys that are better than me, there's guys that are worse than me. And, like, if I went to the front on a climb, I could make it so there's 20 guys left. Like, mm-hmm. I was capable of that. So how dirty could it be? Um, and that's really the only way you know is when you can right. feel it. Just when a guy, like, rides away from everyone. Yeah. And then, but then there were a few, There, there's still some of that. There's still some guys who were kind of involved in that other era and kind of slipped away and and either, like... They're still up to some gray area stuff. Like they're the 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 governing bodies could never do enough. You know, like you can't you can never stay ahead of the curve. It's it's like anything else. It's like mm-hmm. Wall Street. Like the guy who the guy who graduated from from Stanford or or Harvard is is working on Wall Street, and the guy who's regulated him went to University of Florida. Mm-hmm. So he's never it's never going to work. Yeah, it's interesting. I had a uh, I had a guy on the podcast a couple of years ago who was a hedge fund trader and he ended up getting involved in some insider trading. Mm. And then, you know, what started off is it, it, it was so the way he like walked through like that moment where he made his first sort of insider trade. Right. And the kind of ethical conundrum it put him in. But then once he did it and it was okay and then it became easier. And before he knew it, he's like, handing, you know, <laughs> brown bags of cash to strange people on street corners and and right. it just got easier and easier and he he got into it because he just was just trying to keep up with the culture. You right. know, he, it was going on all around him and it was normalized. That until, sounds exactly like doping. Yeah, <laughs> and then one day he gets a tap on the shoulder from a guy in aviator shades and says get in the back of the suburban, right. <laughs> you know? And then he ends up becoming like this prolific FBI informant and his information was Shrewd. responsible for toppling a lot of the top guys in the world. And I had a chance to talk to him and he told me the whole thing. It was like a, this epic two-hour story. Mm-hmm. And 
it was right after he had been sentenced and his whole life had fallen apart. He was a felon. He was going to avoid jail time. But, you know, his world had crumbled around him. But I had so much empathy for him because I could I was trying to walk a mile in his shoes. And I'd like right. to say if I was him, I wouldn't have done that. But, you know, I don't know that. You know what I mean? Yeah. I wasn't part of that culture. And so I'm very reticent to pass judgment on anybody who cross that line in cycling. Like it's so analogous. Like I wasn't there. I wasn't part of that. I would mm -hmm. like to think that I wouldn't make that choice. Um, but when you're surrounded by an entire community of people that are doing it, you know, it becomes trickier to levy like hardcore judgment on people that made that choice that are just trying to hang on to their job so that they can con continue to do the thing that they love. Right. You know, but it sounds like you never were kind of presented with that moment like right there was no moment where it, it, it became a tempting thing for you no no one ever like handed me a needle and i had to be like no nah, man that's not my thing like mm -hmm. i'm not but but that was part of the but that's encouraging that you weren't yeah. presented with that well, or or like they would have but i had a tattoo and they knew it wouldn't go well right that, that could be the but i don't i don't think so i really don't believe that I, I think i think it's significantly cleaner um and and to speak to what you're saying like i know i know a lot of dopers and a lot of them are friends, like, and, and you're exactly right. Like there's some who, there's some who you sit in a room with and you're kind of like, or you hear stories like that guy's bloodthirsty. That's like a dark human being mm -hmm. who, who, who tried, who wanted to dope, who needed this, who like made the effort. And then there's another one who like, that guy was in the wrong place at the wrong time at 19 and, and he never had a shot and you kind of do have the empathy and yeah, there's a qualitative difference between yeah. those two archetypes, right. I think. And and part of the reason I got the tattoo is kind of like, if it is like that, you know, and if you can empathize and understand, it's kind of like, I want to look at this and remember who I am. Right, it holds if, you if accountable. If I am faced with that decision, yeah. that, that here's... So the deal was like a bunch of guys got the same tattoo or similar ones, different versions. And, and it was like, if you ever if you ever dope, we're scraping it off you. That mm. was that was our little like pinky swear to each other. Right. Um, so accountability. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. So you're you're racing for Garmin in 2014, mm -hmm. and did you go to you were lit, you were in Girona? You're doing yep. the whole deal and all yeah. of that, and then but that was like a only a one year deal, right? Yeah. You ended so up that on was a different team after that. Exactly. So that was they 
that's the thing that the sort of the whole time I was kind of facing this like shrinking sport. So as I'm getting better and the ladder's getting chopped down, um, I I did well that year. I'll 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 be honest with myself, um, and I'm usually not easy on myself, but I was I was good. And then uh, a couple teams folded, and Garmin Sharp merged with this Italian team called Cannondale. It wasn't exactly a merger; mm-hmm. they kind of just ate them. And uh, but it was a bloodbath as far as the rosters of two teams coming together. So I went went back to the U.S., went back to the minor leagues basically for a year. Uh, this team called Optum mm-hmm. and um, was good enough there. Jumped back over to Cannondale the year after. They're like, all right, Phil, we'll have you back. Um, and then then that year I wasn't so good. And at the end of that, I kind of retired. That was right. sort of like, um, this is all I got. <laughs> I emptied my, my tank. So you didn't, I mean, you could have continued to race. I mean, you were still, you were performing at a pretty high level still. Yeah. Yeah. But when... I guess part of the thing for me was like I once I knew that my my upward trajectory was gone. I didn't have the energy to to claw my way back to Europe again. Um, I didn't I didn't have the energy to like get paid nothing again and kind of just go through that whole cycle. Right. And I was sort of like it. It took everything I had to get there. Was was what I kind of realized. Um, I had some personal stuff like my dad died the year before. It kind of mm-hmm. just knocked me out. Um, so there was there was a lot of just. In, in my head, I was sort of ready to move on at that point. Right. And at that point, did you like, when did you, when did you write uh, pro cycling on $10 a day? That was a couple of years yeah. ago, right? So, so that one, I, I wrote that when I was still on Bissell. So the thing is like, when you're on an American team, like the plus side, if you're not getting paid much is you basically, I think we only race like 40 days a year. Mm-hmm. So you're training hard, you're training full time, but you can, you can start a business or write a book in your spare time. Like you can experiment and play with stuff. Um, so that was kind of what I did is I, I wrote that in the off season and, um, and had you already been like blogging for Velo news or yeah. I mean, you were, your, your writing is all over the internet in the cycling community. So did yeah. you, like, when did you realize like, Oh, I have a voice, like, you know, I have, a, I have something to say about this and, and, and the desire to kind of like share your perspective. Right. I mean, I've, I definitely always had a mouth <laughs> as far as a yeah. voice. Um, so I went to school, I finished a, at an English degree, minor in journalism, so I guess that was always in me. I was mm-hmm. just like telling stories and and kind of like trying to, trying to have a point of view. Um, and so when I finished college and my parents weren't super stoked on me being a full-time bike racer for $2,000 a year. Uh-huh. So I was kind of like, oh, I'm going to freelance <laughs> right. I'm going to do that. Uh-huh. So I, I, I got a That was your with, side hustle. Right. So that was Bicycling Magazine was like my first writing gig. So it was once a week, I'd write a little blog about being a sad amateur. Um, <laughs> and then that moved to Velo News. And then at some point I kind of collected all that. I was like, oh, I have 200,000 words. I could cut that out and kind of make a book out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, so pro cycling $10 a day was kind of that story of, of coming up from college and, and it ends with me signing to Garmin Sharp, which is, which is so funny. And you write an autobiography at 28. <laughs> it's like, I, I laugh at like the ego of myself at that point. I was like, oh, it's going to be smooth sailing from here. Like it's, you know, I, I made it. And then you get there and it's like, you're living in a crappy apartment in Girona and you're getting uh-huh. your butt kicked in Belgium. And and it, it was far from, from easy street. But Belgium sounds, stands. Belgium sounds miserable. Like it's just like the weather's bad, right? Yeah. Like it's cold. And then you go to these one day races where it's freezing out. Yeah. There's definitely a lot of points in, like the the glamorous life of a pro cyclist is you're like you're in a you're in a, a rented bus because like the big bus is at the big race and if you're even on the best team in the world there's like 
you know, A, B, A races, B races, and, and I'm at a C race in Belgium in like a, a weekend rental bus. And you're just like <laughs> looking out the window uh-huh. and it's like, I'm one of the best in the world of this thing. And it's just dumping rain. Uh-huh. And it's like, yeah, I got to go out there for a day. <laughs> it's like, you're just covering like your legs with lotions and, and uh, hot creams. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. I don't know, man. You got to love it. You know, you got to, you got to be you doing do. it for the love. <laughs> well, what's, what's interesting about a lot of the pro cyclists is um once they retire they still go out and like ride every day like they still love the bike like i know a lot of swimmers who when they retire they're like i'm done man like i'm not going into the pool like i'm staying dry i'm not getting wet at all they just want nothing to do Mm -hmm. with it but so many cyclists you know obviously they're doing it for the love because they just keep they just keep riding like every day like they're still pros right no i don't i don't know how i could quit it's it's weird but uh yeah from from when i stopped racing i'm probably riding about half as much i'm riding 12 hours a week instead mm-hmm. of 25 or 30 but uh i think i lose my mind real quick if i if i quit i think yeah. i yeah it's it's like i took a month off and sort of that was when i realized i had to retire this was like last fall and then i came back and just went on like a strava spree right and, we're going to we're going to talk yeah, about that and, yeah but it's 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 definitely like a lifestyle i don't know how i'd how, it, it's it'd be surprising if I ever stopped riding. Yeah, well, that's that's beautiful, you know, because your heart's in the right place with it. You're doing it for the right reason. Or I'm an addict, and yeah, maybe that. <laughs> yeah, that could be it too. Right. When you were on Bissell, um, was that during the time like when Tom Zerbel got busted? Um, was that, he was you, that was a year. After? That was a year before. I was teammates with Tom Zerbel on on Optum uh-huh. uh, in 2015. I mean, there was a moment where he was like going to be the next big thing. Yeah, right. he'd, he'd absolutely, he'd earned it and, uh, and he, and he trained and then he kind of had one of those things. And this is the problem with the sport is like, you know, and, and we know the guys who got away with it. Like we literally, like, you know, them, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, exactly who they are. It's very easy The like, there was the, the operation Puerto is the big, like drug scandal, um, kind of, I guess of my era. And that wasn't a sponsor. Fortunately, operation Puerto was not right. like Festina, <laughs> the, um, but they, but there, it was they. They found all these blood bags in this doctor's fridge somewhere in his back of his car, and they all had like cute little code names. But it was you could like anybody who knew anybody could figure out who was who. It, it was like you know the guy's wife's name or his dog's name, and it, it, they didn't even try to to disguise it. And then like, but they never released that. They never got official. So like you're just racing with these guys, mm-hmm. and, uh, and so you, you know. know. And then you know. yeah, and then there's guys like Zerbel who just like tested positive for like something for him it was DHEA and that's like in a lot of you know cheap pharmaceuticals it's like a bad steroid that lingers in your system it's the last thing you take for doping it's Mm -hmm. it's the last and but he was over a threshold to the point where like if he'd had a bottle of water that day he wouldn't have been positive because it's you know we're talking about micro millimoles Mm. or something so how does something like that end up like is there some pharmaceutical he was taking that accidentally had that in there I mean was it a mistake or for 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 him, like I mean, I don't know. Put a gun to my head, I would say it was it was a mistake. It was there was some kind of vitamin he was taking, some kind of a some something a street taco. Like all the thresholds mm. are sober. It's just it's not a perfect system. So the the logic of it is if you if you're for if you're catching a bunch of guys, that somebody's going to slip through who who wasn't really, and that's I think just statistically. Uh, um, and I feel like there that- were a few 
victims of that. There's, but that's different from like what was the whole Contador thing with the like right. the, the meat, and like the, right? He, yeah, <laughs> he, he ate bad meat or something that was, like that. That was his excuse. That he, but the, that's the funny thing is like the thing that he tested positive for, like could have been from banned meat, except he was probably on EPO before that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's kind of like uh, a lot of weird things like that. Do you think that uh, like what you know the advances in pharmaceuticals and genetic engineering like all this the the gestalt of like technological progress is so rapid these days that it's hard to imagine that there isn't a fringe that's just always going to be a couple steps ahead of whatever the testing protocols are going to be able to to test for right i i think that's that's 100 the case and and i think that would apply to any sport or like any aspect of society mm-hmm. like wall street and and unfortunately, like in cycling, because of because how bad it was, because how heavy it was, I feel like that's become the narrative in cycling is is who's doping and who's not. And and you'll hear right. you'll hear like if you hear old football fans or old you know basketball fans, they're like, would LeBron beat Michael Jordan as prime? Like that's the stuff they debate about to ad nauseum. And and in cycling, it's what was that guy on? You know what was he doing? Mm-hmm. And I think because that's part of the story, it kind of cycles and it and it makes it worse. It needs, uh, I feel like it, the sport needs some breath of fresh air to reinvigorate, uh, public enthusiasm about it. Cause I just know personally, like as a fan, like I was super into watching it, followed it really closely from like, I don't know, 2007 to 2010 or 11 or something like that. And then, and then I just was like, "Ah, I'm just, I can't get into it. You know, I just can't get, I can't get up for like being psyched to watch these races anymore. Right. You know, I don't know whether that's because we need a new superstar or, so, you know, a personality to get us excited about it or just a sense that what we're watching is real. Right. I, know? I hear you. I don't, I don't know the answer to it. There's, there's definitely like, I think there's a lot of problems. Obviously there's a lot of problems in the sport. I think one is the, the, the grand tours, the, like the big races, the ones that are on TV, I think they're sort of they they forget that their the riders aren't doing EPO anymore, so they're like they're, there's this weird like penis sizing contest of of who can have the hardest stage race between the Tour of Spain and the Tour de France and the mm-hmm. Vuelta, and and they're all like well we have 16 mountain tough finishes this year and it's kind of like all that means is the best climber wins by more, and and it's less watchable and if they wanted to make it more competitive that you know it should come down to a time bonus the last day that's what people are watching, mm-hmm. um, but. But yeah, there's there's so much history to it that it's hard to sort of it's hard to sort of fix. Um, it, the the sport has kind of evolved so much that it, it doesn't know what to do with itself. I think. I think it's also fraught with so much crony politics, yeah. especially in Europe, um, that there's an old guard that's holding on to a certain way of doing things, and until you know a new era, a new generation of people that are kind of organizing these races and controlling the the governing bodies of these organizations, it's going to stay the same. Yeah, I don't of of all the things that have been proposed, I think to to me part of what I I don't I don't think anything's going to work. I'll start there. Like uh-huh. from of all the, the solutions that you see, it doesn't it's not like that's the thing that's going to solve it, but I, I part of what I always liked about cycling was kind of like there is this kooky charm of it's a circus, like it's a bike race, but it's also a circus. And you can, as, as a fan, you can sort of laugh at it. I don't know if you were watching the tour last year, the day that like 
Chris Froome ran into the motorcycle. They're like mm. racing up this mountain and it's the it's the top four guys left and they're ripping up this mountain and there's a sea of people and it's the beautiful spectacle. Oh, they're all on the ground. <laughs> and, <somebody laughs> ran, and, Chris, and then the next yeah. thing, like it cuts to, we don't know what happened. We don't know why they crashed. And then the next thing you see is Chris Froome running up the mountain and it's kind of like, that's our sport. That's yeah. unfortunately like you can, you can call it whatever you want. You can act as professional as you want. You can take his speed suit to wind tunnels but he's running up a mountain in his cleats right. and no one knows where his bike is. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's kind of hilarious. And it's the, you know, the, it's the drama, you know, the drama, right. it's sort of like crashes in NASCAR or something. Exactly. Like that. And that's, it's, it's so crappy as an athlete to like, to look at, like I would watch like the promos for the tour, the little, little ads they have for the tour de France. And like three out of four clips are just somebody sliding into a fence. It's like, Oh, that's what you guys want to see me do. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, that's yeah. What you're watching like going for. over the guardrail. Right. Right. Know, okay. That yeah. That's dramatic, but Al, <laughs> So walk me through like a typical training day or training week in the life of a professional cyclist. Like what is that, what is that monk-like existence all about? Sure. Um, it, I don't know. It's not that bad. Cause like when, when you're in the, when you're in the thick of it in like in Europe, those guys, like your, your race schedule is your training, right? Like essentially like your curve is determined by, cause you're doing week on week off stage races, mm -hmm. um, like half the spring. So when you're, when you're at home, when you're training, you're, you're kind of mostly resting, you're recovering from, from whatever, cause you're thrashed at the end of those. Um, but, but typically like the routine would be like, say you have a month in, in Spain or something. Um, you, you kind of get up, have breakfast, get on the bike at 10, you meet your buddies. There's like in Girona, there was like a text thread, like a WhatsApp group of, of a bunch of the teammates or English speakers, just all my friends basically. And you kind of message them like, Hey, I'm doing four hours tomorrow. I want to do three climbs and mm -hmm. I'm meeting at this cafe at 10 and, uh, and you go, you ride, you do a few hours, you stop for a Coke and a crepe somewhere. And you know, the crepes de Sucre, not the, not the yeah. ones with the salmon, all that bullshit in them. Um, but, uh, and then, and then you go ride a few more mountains. So it's, you're, you're smashing each other on the bike for three hours and you take a break and you enjoy yourself and then you go do it again. And, uh, and in Spain, like dinner doesn't start until eight o'clock basically. And, mm -hmm. and, and you're out. It's, it's a nice little life. If you can get there. Yeah. It's very gentlemanly. Yeah. It yeah. It is. Like, it's you know. civil in, in the top league. Like it's not cutthroat. You're not competing with other riders on other teams for, for whatever. Like it's, it's very adult. It's professional. Like you're, you're all in this together. You're not taking risks in the races as much like if families. Uh -huh. And are, do you work with a coach or are you responsible for just sort of determining your own training plan or how does that work? With, with teams, it's kind of 50, 50. Most, I would maybe, maybe more than half of like the world tour teams, the top tier teams have like a team coach and you have to be, you have to be working under them and they're giving you all the rides to do. And that mm -hmm. kind of goes with your racing on, on the teams I was on. I always have my own coach, just a, a friend from Boulder, basically who I'd known for a long time. So you have to hire your own coach. Yeah. And that's on you. Yeah. That's, that's you're paying so for that. It is. It's bizarre. Yeah. Well, the whole sport be like is, Tom Brady, like, you know, just doing right. his own thing and like hiring his own coach, you know, like it just, yeah. it's a bizarre no, and so much of it is like that. And I think it, well, the whole sport, we talked about like the first Tour de France, there's no drafting, you might have a sponsor, there's one, there's one, there's no team. And then sort of it, later it evolves into, it's now it's a full on team sport. Like Chris Froome wins a Tour de France, he touched the wind for 5% of it, was he actually like doing mm -hmm. his job and the rest of it, his teammates who like, their finish line is 5k to go, but those guys are good. And then at the end, like he's the one who gets all the money and he's the one on the podium. Right. Like it's... In, in the NBA, like, you know, the Chicago Bulls win and 
in this it's like Chris Froome won. He's he's right for Team Sky, but and so the money the the money doesn't go to the team like the the sponsor whatever that recognition doesn't go to the sponsor as much as it should, and then it the results end up being very skewed, which probably is a lot of the reason guys dope too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well. I think people underestimate the team aspect of, of the whole affair, you know, right. and how much the teammates, you know, basically sacrifice themselves for the frooms of the world. Right. And it's a chicken and the egg. If they put the whole team on the podium, maybe it would look different. Maybe people would see sort of mm-hmm. how that should look. Yeah. I, you would imagine like, oh, well, you're riding for Garmin. So Vauders is telling you what to do and, you know, he's right. giving you your workouts. And right. It's like, no, he doesn't have anything to do with that really, right? Like right. that's we, not, I mean, his job is to like manage the team and see the big picture. Yeah. I think he coached like personally one or two guys the last couple of years, but, mm-hmm. and there was a team coach if you wanted to work with him, I think maybe five or six guys, but and they sort of, the team coach would interface with your coach and sort of make sure you're on track. And they're, you know, you upload your power data to somebody's website and nobody actually looks at it, but they make you think right. they're looking at it <laughs> and they're kind of enforcing, but it's just uh-huh. the budget's not there to sort of, at least it wasn't to oversee me. Like I was, uh-huh. I was at the bottom of the fringe. I could do whatever I want. Nobody would have noticed, but. Are you like a data geek freak kind of guy who's super into your, you know, kilojoules and watching your Watts and, and all of that? Like how, how important, you know, is all of that? Like when you were training at your, you know, at your sort of peak? It's, it's a tool as far as like, I know a lot about it and my coach knows a lot about it. And that was part of what, like my workout would be ride this many, like go out and do 3,500 kilojoules and then start doing your intervals. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know a lot about it, but I, I say I'm far from a geek as far as it's like the last thing I want to talk about. And I know like what it's worth to have good power. Like there's, there's so much, there's so much else to the sport and and the dynamics of a race like i know a lot of guys with amazing power who cannot win a bike race and and i know some guys who like you see their power it's like how have you ever won anything Mm -hmm. (laughs) like you must be some kind of a ninja uh it's it's like a small fraction of the picture yeah you see uh this culture of amateur athletes that are so into you know their garmin and Mm -hmm. their strava and like you know their heart rate and their watts and all that kind of stuff it's so easy to get super caught up in that And pretty much without fail, when I talk to professional athletes, like they have a much more balanced uh, arm's length relationship with wearables and all of that kind of stuff. Right. Like it's, it's one of the things that you look at, but, uh, but I think a lot of cycling and, and this comes to like the, the bike itself, like people, I think a large percentage of, of people who ride bikes just like having nice bikes and it's more, it's like half tinkering and half collecting and uh-huh. and if you ride your bike at all, it's a bonus. That's a very politic way of <laughs> describing <laughs> a certain aspect of cycling culture. Right. So, but I mean, it's like, if that's what you're into, that's what you're into. People like working on cars, people mm-hmm. like, you know, shining their bike. And it's, that's not, that's not what I'm into it for. Um, but, and with the same thing, like geeking out on the power data is, is another side of it that some people just get, get super into to the point that it's, it's really funny to be me or to, to have good power or to have, be anybody. And just like, if you're a pro, you're scared to tell anybody your power because I had, like I had, I won this race in the U S and, and some magazine featured my power file and, and the, the comments and the feedback that I got from it, it was, it was 50, 50, that power is too good. You're a doper, obviously. And 50, 50, like, you should My power is better, better than, than you. I'm yeah. better than that. <laughs> yeah. there, there was nothing in between. Yeah. There was no like good effort, Phil. Uh-huh. And and it, it's it's frustrating. It, but it's more just it's hilarious at some point once you get out of it. Have you ever been on slowtwitch.com? 
they have enough. a whole they have a whole forum it. there that's right. like a it's like a sewer of that kind of right. you know attitude it can, I, it can be i started putting my files on on strava and there's it's 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 funny just the comments and people are like your power meter's off that can't be possible and i'm like no mm-hmm. this is all i ever did like i'm gonna beat the local guy by a lot on the thing <laughs> like there's got to be a lot of pros though that don't want they don't want to share that that information though because they think if their competitors see that then they'll be clued into what they're doing or they're kind of tipping their hat as to where they're at in their training. Right. Yeah, that's I think like the the top guys I kind of see that like if if you're the if the Tour de France is basically like a, a lactate threshold contest um you know if you don't, Chris Froome wouldn't want anybody to know where his is. Right. Um, I, I still think that whole thing, given the doping culture, given all of it, like, I think that's kind of silly and what's it going to, what's it going to reveal? Um, I, I feel like people should, transparency is nice. Yeah. Um, and given the other hurdles that we're dealing with, I don't see why they're like hiding their data as if it's, as if there's anything really special to it. Like we can all guess. Right. And you kind of know who's, who's who and and who's going to be where. And ultimately on race day, you got to show up and race, right? Right. It's, it's, it's almost like, I mean. Some guys put tape over their Garmin devices, right? Because they just want to race and go on feel and not be like, because it can play head games with you if your watts are off and, you know, it can take you out of what you're trying to accomplish. Sure. That's definitely like an amateur thing is, is like staring at the power too much and, and, and not knowing if, if you're, if you're doing it long enough, if you're a professional, like you can feel when you're at threshold or above threshold, like you don't need, I would, I would do the exact same time trial effort if I was looking at power, if I wasn't. Right. And that goes at that level with everyone. Yeah. I mean, I know, you know, my background is swimming. So like, I know when I swim a hundred meters, like I could tell you within a second, like what that time is just because you've been doing it forever. I'm sure you, at any moment you could say my heart rate is this, and this is what my Watts are just based on how in touch you are, like how connected you are to the bike. Mm -hmm. And, but, and if the same thing, like if you're a runner and all you're doing is like staring at your, at your lap times or your splits, then if you'll eventually you'll go insane if you're trying to be better every day and you can't just sort of tune out with like, here's my workout, here's what I'm mm-hmm. doing, here's how I feel. Um, yeah, you can you can fall down the the rabbit hole of of power. Yeah. I think the other thing that that a lot of people don't realize about professional cycling is a lot of the a lot of the saddle time is saddle time. Like there's a lot of like low grade aerobic, you mm-hmm. know, just getting out and riding and you know, you're not just out killing yourself for eight hours every single day. Like there's a lot of just, you know, enjoyable riding, just putting mm-hmm. miles on your bike and getting used to what it feels like to just kind of be out all day in a very casual yeah. kind of pace. The the middle the middle third of like every big race, like you're trading recipes in a pack, like your heart rate is 120. Uh-huh. And so it's at that point, like when you're training for that, you're sort of training to like burn fat more efficiently and and your metabolism and stuff like that like that's where the gains are made in Mm. in that part of the race what do you think is the biggest misconception that people have about being a professional cyclist and we kind of talked about yeah i mean probably like the the doping is one thing there's still like a pretty decent percentage just like yeah they're all on it Mm -hmm. this is this is a stupid sport i'm like are you really a fan of cycling if you think that (laughs) Mm -hmm. like i'm like i've i've i don't know you see it all if, if you look at it but um I would say like it, the, the, the glory of it and the kind of the professional athlete mystique is, is shattered when you're in it. Um, and that's not to say like, it's not beautiful, but it's also, it's a circus and that's, 
that's definitely like the I've I've been at race buffets, you know, somewhere in Argentina or something, and like I, I like we're eating cold rice, and it's like the best guys in the world, and it's like that's that's right. it, and it's like <laughs> like that's Mark Cavendish, and he's eating the same thing I am, and like isn't mm-hmm. he a millionaire? And it, <laughs> but that's that's what happened. Yeah, you tweeted the other day like you were recollecting some moment where you were like lugging a suitcase down the street. Oh yeah. Like it at, at one of the one day like <laughs> yeah. Roubaix or something like yeah, that. Exactly. And Taylor Finney walks by and you're just yeah. like, Oh, this is great. Well, that was the, so Perry Roubaix, uh, last year, 2016, I'm on Cannondale and I'm like hanging out in Girona training for, for some stage race with mountains where I belong. Like I don't, the cobblestone one day thing, like I'm, I'm a climber. I don't, I have mm-hmm. no business there, but there was a point where, Somehow, like a, a cold went around the whole team, and everybody got sick, and like I got to be the guy they called to like be the last spot. Like you have to fill eight spots or nine spots, whatever, at a big race like that, or there's like a fine. So literally, they just needed like a body, and and I was the sacrificial climber lamb who was thrown <laughs> to it. So like I got a call like 48 hours before the biggest race in the world, and they're like, "Yo, Phil, we need you." And I'm like. Oh God. <laughs> and like, I've never, you know, they use like a specific bike for that. Yeah. And like, I've never touched any of yeah, it. Yeah. It's a whole thing. Explain yeah. to people the world of Paris-Roubaix. Paris-Roubaix, it's, it's, so the Tour de France is like the, the main race of, of cycling, but then Paris-Roubaix is kind of the, it's a one day there's, there's cobblestones, there's carnage, there's these three foot wide roads that you're somehow racing on, but like, it's not even possible to have a race on it. But it's the biggest thing that happens in Belgium. And and it's it's like in this small pocket of our sport, it's like the big one-day race. It probably gets better like TV ratings than the tour because mm-hmm. it's all concentrated. Um, but it's always – it's just a famous mess for just like bikes aren't meant for these roads and – and it's it's a zoo. Yeah, you're literally riding on these cobblestones where you just feel like you're getting jackhammered. Right. You're you're pounded. And so the specialists at this are like the sprinter types, the big heavy dudes Tom who, who grew up in exactly Tom Boonen and Peter Sagan, like those those dudes. Um, not the the skinny 150 pound six one guys. Right. Um, so what was so, that like for you? It, well, it was at some point like I was I was there and I sort of knew my my role. And, uh, and I was kind of like, I'm just going to enjoy this. Like, I don't know, I, I can't do anything. Like, I'm just going to try to not die. But, uh, but it was kind of like when, when I was called up, it was like immediately a joke, like in the, the worldwide, in the cycling world, there was, there was a hashtag <laughs> pray for Phil campaign on Twitter from, and, and, but, but then like they do the call ups, they do like the, the announcement and the team presentation and, and on my team, all the guys line up and I get the loudest cheer, like all ironically <laughs> from the crowd. And, and I just like, I just looked up and laughed at it. So that was like the moment of I, I arrived and I'm walking down the hallway and, and like Finney who like is born for this. And like, this is like his thing of, of the year. Um, you know, he could, he could win it someday. And he, he kind of comes out in the hallway and sees me and just started busting out laughing. Like, <laughs> like a fun tomorrow. And I did all right. I got in the early break. That's hard. Uh-huh. That was, uh, that was definitely better than, than I was expected to do. Listen, man, for any, you know, I, I, I'm sure there's legion of professional cyclists and young cyclists who, who would dream of doing that race one day. Exactly. So it's Myself cool included. to have that experience. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Even, even though like it sort of meant something about the way my career was headed that like I was the guy called up for the race that uh-huh. that that was like one of the signs one of the nails in my coffin of being a pro cyclist was <laughs> was that's my job on this uh-huh. team is a joke
Well, let's talk about the worst retirement ever. Okay. Yeah. So you decide to retire, but it's it's not really a, it's not really a retirement because you're on a mission. Right. Well, my so, my joke is kind of like I was I wasn't good enough to be a pro cyclist, and I'm going to be the worst at retiring. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so I'm going to like I'm I'm starting a best, job soon. The best, you know. Or yeah. So I mean, quietly, it's the best retirement ever. Yeah. That's the tongue in cheek idea, but because nobody's making me do it, it's so it's it's all my idea. But so the the concept is. Um, I'm I'm going after hill climb records and and basically Strava's, but more broadly, like the records could have been established a long time ago, mm-hmm. um, kind of all over the country. And I I kind of I had a few sponsor relationships, and we're just doing the YouTube channel around it. So it's all it's all tongue in cheek. But part of part of what's funny is like I'm I'm kind of making fun of the people who who take Strava too serious, people who take power yeah. too seriously, and to the point where I'm going I'm going far overboard, and I'm. I'm going after Tom Danielson's Strava segment in Tucson on Mount Lemon, and I have a 13-pound bike, and I have a $400 speed suit, and I have a follow car, right. and, and we're filming it, and it's uh-huh. still like, okay, I'm just taking this to 11, and and all you guys can get mad at me, right? Um, but it's it's been it's been really funny. I think it's a good way to like to to kind of go away. It's a great idea. You know, I, I'm not surprised like tons of sponsors want to get on board with that and, and, you know, film it for YouTube and you're on this mission to like tackle all these challenges. But I think in order to kind of provide context for that, uh, you have to talk a little bit about sort of the origin of Strava and Strava culture and kind sure. of what's happened with all of these KOMs. I mean, I remember being out here when Strava first launched. And I was training for Ultraman and I would, I would do, I would train a fair amount with like Ben Bostrom, mm-hmm. you know, Ben. Oh yeah. And in the early days, like Ben was going around taking the KOMs everywhere. Like right. that guy's a, even though he was, I mean, I think that He's guy good. could, he could have been a professional cyclist yeah. in a, I don't know why he never, like, he probably I've never seen doing his, his thing. He's so talented <laughs> on a bike. Like right. he would ride up Latigo on his mountain bike and just crush most people, you mm-hmm. know? Um, but he was taking them and then Dave Zabriskie was taking a bunch and it was all kind of like fun. And I had to get off Strava because I was trying to train for Ultraman and, and like I had to be in aerobic zone most of the time and it would screw with my head because I'd, <laughs> I'd hit a climb and I'd be thinking, what is this going to look like on Strava? And it's not moving the ball forward in terms of what I'm trying to right. ultimately accomplish. So I had to log off and not deal with it anymore. But it was kind of fun. It was cool. And with all the hills, you know, all the climbs around the Malibu, you know, Santa Monica Mountains, there was like a healthy competition around it. And then with Tour of California and the growth of Strava, there was a lot of professional cyclists getting into the game. And then a lot of the KOM started being taken by, you know, real riders in right. the mix. And then a lot of riders who ultimately got, uh, got busted for doping. Right. So a lot of these KOMs are held by dopers or ex-dopers. Right. It's, yeah, it's, it's funny, like that whole, that whole world of, of Strava and it is like a world in itself. Um, but yeah, especially like around here, there's, the, the KOMs here are all, they're all world-class. Like everything, everything here is either like from the tour of California or, or from like a pro training camp. Mm-hmm. And so, so for me, for me, to, for me to get them, I honestly like do feel proud of the ones that I get. But part of the mission really is to reclaim these KOMs clean. Right. So that was, that was sort of how it started. That would be the genesis of it was there was, there was one guy who, who lived in LA and kind of was he was sort of a known doper. He tested positive at, at Masters Nationals years before, and then he got caught. Uh, he'd been selling EPO online. Um, and and after, <laughs> I think after all of that, oh he, he made it a mission to like, got he got all of the ones in LA, 
Um, and he was, it was he was under a pseudonym on Strava. Yeah, he had though, a fake right? name. I don't want to give him the publicity, but he. Uh, but yeah, he had like a fake name that was sort of tongue in cheek, and and he had this like clothing brand he was trying to promote, and and he promoted that via like Strava and Instagram, which is like a bizarre business model. Um, and and then sort of people figured out his past, and and it it I guess it looked to them like he was doping for Strava. I don't know if that's true, but it was it was enough that like. When he's on the top of every leaderboard in LA, it was kind of an eyesore for that community. Uh huh. But he was Strava famous. Yeah, he made himself Strava famous, and he went and like, I mean, he was strong, and like, so a local elite amateur or even pro, like, who wasn't a climbing specific dude, really couldn't get him. Like, they were out of reach for for most humans. Mm-hmm. Um. So then, when I retired, I kind of just like went on a group ride for fun. I went on like the the Nichols ride, is the big fast person ride on on Sunday mornings in LA, and. And I, I, I just went as hard as I could. I was in a bad mood. And, and I ended up getting the Strava for Nichols Canyon. And all of my friends, like I, my cell phone blew up that night. Like I just won a big race in Europe. Uh-huh. Like it was, it exploded. Like, dude, you got Nichols. I was like, you guys like this? <laughs> like, this is, like, like you're this getting is more attention than a, you were a, when you were, when you were riding for Garmin. Right. I was like, Hey, like, how do you, how dare you guys be surprised that I can get a Strava from like an, like an amateur guy who, you know, and and be like, okay, this is what I'm going to do now. Mm-hmm. So like, I would just peck away. And I eventually like, I got all the ones from him and then I kind of challenged myself and got all the ones in the canyons from the pros here and doper or not doper. Um, but, but that sort of became the story is like, I'm, I'm like the Robin Hood stealing the KOMs back for the clean riders. Right. Um, so how many of them do you have around you? Do you have Latigo now? Yeah. You do? Yeah, I got nice. that. That was a good one. Um, that's the jewel. Yeah. That's, that's the here. one. Um, no, I, I basically, I have all the good ones in the canyons now. So I have my uh-huh. Fondo and I wanted to get all those. Um, and then I have, yeah, I basically like went and collected them. So I, I'm, I'm the, the king of the Santa Monica mountains at this right. point. I'm so the king of this tiny you, kingdom. So you have, oh, you have every, you have basically yeah. have every client. Do you have, do you have Stunt Road? Yeah, I got Stunt you Road, do? man. Yeah. For people that are listening, <laughs> Stunt Road is like literally one mile from where yeah, we're look, sitting I got right Stunt, here. I got Payuma, <laughs> you know, you just list them, man. I got Rock Store. <laughs> Dude, the, you uh, are a superstar. And what's funny? How many people are following you on Strava now? Uh, like eight thousand or something. I don't know, but it's it's funny because like I, when as as a pro cyclist, like you're an athlete. It's but it's a fringe sport. I would if I rode my my bike in my Cannondale kit or something, like I'd get recognized mm-hmm. in on on the road every day. Uh, street clothes very close to never. A few times right. a year since. I retired and stopped racing professionally and I started going for stunt road in a skin suit with covered in cookies. Um, it, I get recognized on the street like weekly, maybe it's like, mm-hmm. as like the Strava guy. And it's funny, like people, I don't know how that works, but the it's, it's bigger than you think that world. And, and it, it does, it means something to people. Like it doesn't, it means less to me to have these KOMs. I just think it's fun. But but some people are like they were super stoked about it, so it's, it's been a fun. It's mission. interesting that like you you found your niche as a professional cyclist, like becoming <laughs> more well known and recognized, you know, right. post professional career by virtue of social media. And it was all a joke. Like I was yeah. just I was kind of just killing time until my contract was out and I was going to start a job, which I still am. But the. Uh, yeah, I was just messing around and then it kind of snowballed and then companies were like, hey, can we sponsor you? And I was like, 
Are you serious for Strava? Fine. <laughs> you should make it so like you're you're just you get all these sponsors and you're making way more money like doing this than you were when you were actually a professional. Right. The, the, the budget for my YouTube thing is it's uh-huh. it's very close to where yeah to that's where that's being amazing. a low paid that's for cool. every team other than the World Tour stuff. I mean that's more. an awesome side hustle. You know what I mean? Like sort of leveraging social media and people's interest, you know, there's a huge, like you said, like the Strava community is passionate and large, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? There's a lot of attention on that. And to be able to kind of, you know, show your prowess in that world is a, is a cool thing. Like you got, did you get Mauna Kea? Yeah. yeah. I think you saw that. That and was part of, the, that was one of the first ones that I went for. Yeah. And, um, Baldy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, and I'm, so the, the whole, the whole YouTube mission is like, I kind of, because it's, it's social media based, I'll sort of crowdsource it. Uh-huh. And I'll just put on Facebook, like, hey, vote, you know, I want to go to the Southeast. What's my climb? And, and you know, more votes are on Mount Mitchell. So I'm going to Mount Mitchell mm-hmm. and and we'll see what I can do there. And you got uh, Mount Lemon coming up? Um, I, I did. I, I taped Mount Lemon. Mount Lemon will be, when does this come out? Uh, I don't know. Okay. When, when should it come out? Well, so I can't, <laughs> can I tell the results of Mount Lemon? It'll, it'll be a couple months yeah. until, until that episode is out. Oh, Okay. Um, so I can't reveal if I got Mount Lemon or not. I got you. But, uh, I did not Creating get, the hype. I didn't get Palomar. That was, I was nine seconds short on Palomar. Um, that was disappointing. Who owns that one? Uh, Chris Horner, uh, who I'm not a fan of. So we, that was, that was personal. So that was more fun. So, uh, but so it's, it's that kind of, kind of the whole you story. A, did, did you, you raced him up Baldy once, right? Yeah, I raced him a ton. So when he, he was kind of one of the guys who, who, when Europe rejected him at, at later age and, and with a, with a, we don't know about his history kind of thing, he came back and raced in the U.S. against like a bunch of nice, nice kids who never were in that pool. Um, and, and I understand that, but he was also kind of a dick about it. So, so I got to, it's, it's easier to train and get off the couch if you're angry. So he, he sort of took the brunt of that right. that year. Right. Um, and, so yeah, we had this rivalry going. So part of it, it was a joke because like I know he doesn't care if he has his Palomar Strava or not because he won the Vuelta. But but so it's it's sort of the whole idea is kind of tongue in cheek. It's and it's fun. It's it gets to be like yeah. my my trolling uh, full time. Do you think you'll go over to Europe and tackle the the you know the the Alps and the Pyrenees? And I hope I have something better to do than a season two of Worst <laughs> Retirement ever. Honestly, yeah. well you're gonna. Um... You're gonna you're you're taking a job at Wasserman. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's cool. Yeah. So I had Casey on the yeah, podcast. Yeah, I heard that. That was funny. Um, yeah, so that's cool. What are you gonna be doing over there? Um, so so my I'll, I'll be many guys under Casey, uh, but they so my the guy who's gonna be my boss kind of he does events, he does brands, um, a couple athletes. So we're sorting all that out. Uh-huh. Um, I think I'll kind of just like start in the bottom to middle, you know of 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 being a grown up and, and see my, my competency and see my interest and, and hope to move up. But I'm, I'm lucky to, to be able to get in there. But it's more, it'll be more like working with brands and events, not like representing cyclists as an agent. Yeah. I think the, so my, the way I kind of got in with Wasserman was that was my agent. I was a, I was a Wasserman athlete. Um, and, and the cycling, the cycling business, as we talked about, like it's busted, man. So to be a cycling agent, like just isn't an awesome idea because mm-hmm. when he's my agent, he's like, he's kind of like, well, I can't, you can't really get endorsements because all the sponsors are team-based. So it's kind of like the team has the sponsors. And then like, if the, if there's something the team doesn't have a sponsor for you're it's, it's fair game, but like the team's going to get every bit of cash they can from the Unless industry. you're like a Cavendish, right? Yeah. So like he can bring Oakley and have like a side deal with somebody else like that exists, but, 
but if you're any, if you're a guy who needs that money, like like one year I had a I had a company that that wanted to pay me to wear their sunglasses, five thousand dollars, and my salary was fifty thousand, so five thousand was nice. And then the team signed a sunglass sponsor. They're like, yeah, you don't get to have that. I'm like, man. Mm. <laughs> so there, there's a lot of that. So like, there's not much for an agent to do other than like my agent's job was like, well, I can call Vodders again, and he's not going to answer again. Right. So it's it's not it's not a great business to be to be that kind of uh, that kind of an agent. I think so. There's still he still has a few athletes and a few clients that he's working with, but um, but mostly it's it's in the event kind of world. Right, and you've cut your teeth in the event space because you have your grand fondo. Yeah. Right? So tell me about that. <laughs> well, I've cut my teeth everywhere because you have to. Yeah. <laughs> but sort of be last a survivor. Year, right. So last year I kind of like the a grand fondo is it's like a mass participa- participation bike ride. So they have like century rides that you know you sign up and you go and there's like a, a course that's open to traffic but it's it's marked and there's a couple stops for water and stuff like that and then grand fondo it's it started in europe where the idea was you can ride like a big race course and they'll get like ten thousand people to do like the perry roubaix grand fondo um and and it's sort of a huge thing and some guys are racing it and there's prizes um in the u.s it's harder to like get legal get the roads chained or closed stuff like Mm -hmm. that but uh so it sort of just became a, a, a mass participation um, fun bike day. And, and I kind of noticed like the guys who have successful fondos are kind of former dopers. And like the, the big one is, is Levi's grand. That's like the giant event. And I 8,000 people or more even. And, uh, like, and Levi was just in that generation. And I think like, it's whatever, not even getting into that whole mess, but it's sort of, it was sort of like, nobody had a, a fondo that wasn't a doper. Um, and, and I just wanted to to show like the roads in LA was another thing is there's, I've been living here for two years and it's, it's the best bike riding in the world, honestly. Like it's a 10 way tie with the best bike riding in the world, but there's nothing better than Malibu. And, and all my teammates are kind of like, yeah, I've been to LA. I was in traffic on the 405. How do you train there? So I wanted to sort of give LA the reputation that, that it deserves and tr- or at least try and restore some of that. Yeah. It's um, cool. We were talking about that before the podcast. Right. Like I was saying like, how come more how come there aren't more pro cyclists that live out here? Like the training is epic. Right. The weather's great. And there's a few, and you see some of these teams that come out in the winter. Like I know I'm out riding and suddenly, you know, like a Peloton of 30 guys just breezes right. by me. Like I'm standing still, you know, right. in a blur. So I see them out there. Um, but it's amazing that there are these pockets of, you know, in the United States, at least in like Boulder or San Diego, mm-hmm. where people seem to congregate. And yet it hasn't really connected. The dots haven't really been connected with this area. And yet right. it's so amazing here. Yeah, no, it's, it's totally true. It's, it's a, it, it's somehow doesn't have the reputation it deserves for, for all that for, I think it's just endurance sports in general, like in LA, mm-hmm. you can go, like you can live in the city and you can, you can hike into Griffith park and get eaten by coyotes if you want. Like there's that much nature there. There's, there's like, it's, it's like a nice place to kind of live and, and, and do whatever else. Um, I mean, but where we are right now, like out here, yeah, this you know, it's like it. most people who visit LA don't come out here. They don't even know right. that it's here. So it's right. still a little bit of a secret, I suppose. Right. No, there's, there's the, the PCH, like everybody knows you can ride along that. There's a nice big shoulder the whole way on PCH. And then there's Mulholland Highway is like the famous highway at the top of the ridge. Like every, if you see a car commercial, you can just like count to three and Mulholland's going to be in there. Right. 
Um, and that's like, obviously that's a great or that, road. that hidden Hills area. Yeah. Where, uh, Griffith park where, has a spot yeah. like every, every, every car commercial you can see like, yep, I've been, I know that spot right. or, store <laughs> or whatever. Um, and so it's, it's, it's definitely there. And then in between those two, like from the bottom of the Ridge of PCH to the top on Mulholland, it's just like all these little canyons that like Latigo that we mentioned that nobody, nobody knows Latigo exists. Nobody drives on Latigo unless you're crazy enough to live there. Mm-hmm. And and it's just this beautiful climb that you can see the ocean and then you get to the top and you can see snowy mountains. Like, where are you doing that? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the Fondo is kind of idea to like, you know, I'm, I'm the LA pro, like I, I'm, I'm the one here and let's, let's see what we can do. Um, so what are the climbs in your Fondo? Well, there's three different routes, but, uh, it goes up the Potrero from the backside. There's like Westlake Boulevard area mm-hmm. from, uh, Zabriskie's neighborhood up in there. Mm-hmm. And then I, I won't tell his address on the thing. And then um, <laughs> I'll have one creepy could, fan. We could, we could call thing. him and ask him if it's all right. <laughs> you call him. The um, but so it goes. It kind of goes from from there, and then depending on which one, it goes down to PCH, and then depending on which length, either you go up, um, you go up either your Babuena or Ensenal or or whatever, and, and just does little U's. So there's no left turns crossing traffic. It's all super safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yeah and, and and my my fondo is like cookie themed like cookies became I know, what's my the thing. Co- what's the cookie thing all That's about? That's a great question, man. I get that so often. I don't know how it happened. I at some point like I was writing for Bicycling Magazine, I think, and I mentioned like that I like cookies, which doesn't set me apart from anybody. And but the next race I went to, like someone had brought me a cookie. Like they're like, oh, I saw you were coming to this, and I saw you like cookies, so I brought one. And then I like tweeted a picture of it, and then from there, like it slowly snowballed into. By the time I get better and I'm like sort of well-known and I'm on big teams, like our bus would show up at the race and there's like 10 people waiting outside with plates that they baked or bought from uh-huh. their thing. And just for me, <laughs> and all my teammates <laughs> oh are like, like, Phil, you know, we love cookies too. I'm like, I know. I don't know why this happens. <laughs> but now it was, it's like a whole thing. It's like Ted King and the maple syrup. Exactly. Like they, I think the fan, like it's easy if you can just be put in a box and, but, but I, it was one of like the weirdest but most amazing things in my life is that strangers like I still get them in the mail sometimes. I was like, you got to try my wife's thing, uh-huh. and I'm like, sure. Here's my address. I don't know who you are, but I trust you, and no one's poisoned me. <laughs> yeah, do you get and, like like pot cookies in the mail or yeah, something? Yeah, you'd like think that? I would have, but but I haven't. Like people are just cool. Like everybody, they just want you to have their cookies, and it's uh-huh. been it's 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 been like so strange and amazing. But so when I kind of was was bouncing around the idea of this fondo. Um, a friend of mine runs M street kitchen or he's, he's owns a bunch of restaurants, Jeff Mahan. I don't know if you've been down there, uh-uh. but they've, you got to go. They've got this amazing cookie. So this like this guy who, who rides bikes, he's like a good bike rider and, and he's like, he makes this amazing cookie. So we're a match. And, and he's like, Oh, if you have a Fondo, like I'll make the cookies for it. I was like, yeah, it's going to be like 4,000 cookies. He's like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. I was like, now I have to put on a fondo. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> so, so the cookies came before the fondo. Basically, like I was, you I was had thinking the cookies, about it. So what am I going to do with four thousand cookies? Yeah, I'm going to if, if everything falls into place like uh-huh. that, you kind of just have to like obey the world when when it goes there. So so this year, like Jeff has a charity that he works with called uh, Chef Cycle, mm-hmm. and like a bunch of celebrity chefs that ride bikes. I think somehow like cooking and bikes go together like oh, the yeah. brain that, that does that so there's do you know Seamus Mullen yeah, exactly yeah he's a friend so he's yeah. he's part of that uh-huh. and um he like he does the ride with them and yeah uh, super good dude but like I've had him on the podcast oh too. cool yeah um so yeah we're gonna have so at the Fondo like since we're involving them um I'm not sure if Seamus is gonna come but like Duff Goldman like Ace of Cakes 
mm-hmm. is going to make some cupcakes and like both Brian Voltaggio and Michael Voltaggio, like winner. Of, it's like there's missile and stars at like a post ride picnic, basically. Right. <laughs> and it's going to be awesome. That's cool. That's what, you know, that's the grand, what the Grand Fondo experience is supposed to be all about, right? It's great food and like right. you're kind of celebrating cycling. It's not a race right. by any stretch of the imagination. That's, that's what, like some people want to make it into a race and they will and and have fun with that. And I'm going to be just like enjoying myself. It, it came, the Fondo happened at a time that like, I, I didn't plan to retire last year. Like that wasn't really my goal. <laughs> and and I sort of found out I was retiring like the week before the Fondo. Uh-huh. And it was perfect because it, it gave me, like I was planning this thing that was going to be a nice bike ride for, you know, for as many people as could come. And, and then like, as I transitioned out of like, what am I going to do? Like what place does cycling have in my life? I, I had this, this day that was the best day I ever had on a bike of just like, I'm riding around with a thousand of my friends and we're stopping for cookies. And like, this can just be the next chapter of like, cycling is still great. I can still love it. Mm-hmm. Like it's okay to still love it. And, and, and that's, that's the next chapter. And then, you know, all the people finish the ride and they're like, Hey, this was a great day. Thank you so much. Um, it was, it was like surprisingly transformative and how many and people important. did you have? We had 900, uh, oh, last year great. and now we, we just opened registration last year. We had a ton signing we're going to sell out this year. It's gonna be awesome. Yeah. So it's, it's so October 15th, right? Yeah. Is that yes, what it is? Thank you. It's, we're doing like an optional ride. You have to come. I, I um, definitely will optional come. ride the day before and then like food and I'll have a book coming out and we're uh-huh. just going to, it's going to be like a nice little party experience for the whole weekend. Lots of pro, my pro friends will all show up. This is how I make them visit me now. So philsgrandfondo.com, is that that? Philsfondo, yeah. Philsfondo.com. All right, I'll put that in the show notes. Appreciate it. Yeah, that's cool. That's that's awesome. I mean, for Levi, that's become, like, that's his whole thing, right? He's probably going to be, I mean, mean, his legacy is that. It becomes a big business at some point, right? Yeah, I think it does. And I think, like, he's he's done a ton for charity. Like, that part's nice. Um, We didn't make a profit last year. That'd be cool if we did that. Um, But, like, my sponsors are happy, so it kind of works there. Um, but yeah, I think at some point, like, like people watch bike races, they enjoy it. And like Levi had this entertainment value, but the, this event that he created, like everybody has a great day, thousands of, you know, times a thousand a year. And that's more of a legacy. And that ends up like feeling more significant than I won a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, at least if you're me and you can't really win the big thing. Yeah. Because on some level it's, it's giving back to the sport. You know what right. I mean? And there's nothing that, that feels better than being able to like contribute, you know, mm-hmm. to the thing that like gave you a life and brought you so much joy. Right. And and even if it like spit you up and and, and tore you out as I sort of, I felt at that point, it's kind of like, oh, it, it gave me this. Like I, I never stopped smiling and laughing that day. Uh-huh. That's cool. So how many do you expect to have this year? How many can you, how many can you handle? I think we, we'll figure that out. I think, I think we're going to cap it at 1500 and I'm going to be pissed. Um, cause it probably will sell out, and, but we'll see. Right. Um, it's, it's, you know, it comes down to like parking and logistics and how many cookies I can, I can force Jeff yeah. Megan to make. And you have a, uh, you have a book that just came out, yeah, right? So Ask I had, Pro, so tell me about this. This was, this was another thing, like a bonus of, of last year when like, I'll never figure out how my career kind of fizzled my, my second year in, in Europe where. I just wasn't getting sent to the races that I thought I belonged at. And every time, like I thought I had a good race, I'd just be on the bench for the next one. And, and it was sort of like, it, it was getting to be my time, but I, I didn't, I, I wasn't ready then, but I ended up with like a lot of free time sitting around in Girona in like 
this beautiful apartment where, you know, it's cheap to live over there. I, I'm right next to the cathedral and this like old stone building. It was amazing. And I'm like, I'm going to do something, you know? So I, I'd go train. And then um, I, so I, one thing, one of the writing things I did was this Ask a Pro magazine column for Velen. It was just like a humor column that I did once a month for seven years. Um, There's mostly just like me making fun of readers. Yeah. It's more like comedy than yeah. anything else yeah so the first book i wrote was this this story that was kind of emotional and and the follow your dreams kind of thing and then the ask a pro is is they just put together these basically it's this funny little book it's a it's a cute hardcover it's uh but like i'm i'm proud of it it's 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 entertaining it's a, it's a nice it's like a quick little fun read um and then the other thing i i kind of wrote like a big boy book that will be that penguin's going to come out with in the fall oh wow that's um, cool. what's that yeah called? so that's called draft animals uh-huh. um living the pro cycling dream once in a while is in parentheses so that's sort of the theme of like you're living the dream and it's and it's not what you thought it was but you kind of cut out these little pockets where it's it's and i'm sure this happens to nba players too where a lot of times it's work and or you know you're you're a rock musician and you're on the stage but you're also like carrying guitar through the airport right and you have to pick out the pockets and and sort of like even if you get what you've always wanted, it's you have to actually make it be what you've wanted. Um, so that's kind of the theme of, of what it's really like and, and kind of how to make peace with that um, to this generation of mine that I feel like was told like, oh, you go after your dreams, and everything's going to work out. Um, and then comparing that to the people I know who, who didn't even get as far as I did, who just got eaten by it. That's exciting, man. Three books. You yeah. Know, in a pretty short period of time. That's pretty <laughs> prolific, man. I tried. Yeah. It's, again, a lot of free time being a pro cyclist, a lot of, uh, a lot of evenings in Girona. So. That's exciting. So is that, is, is that book though, the first book that you're doing with like a major publisher? Yeah. That, and, and, and I think the last, I think that no more books are going to happen to me yeah. <laughs> when I'm working at Wasserman. Um, when do you start there? Uh, I'm not sure exactly soon. I'm, I'm like launching the Fondo and, and I've got my, my YouTube stuff. Um, uh-huh. There's a couple of clients that I'm like, try to bring in and when that's sorted out is when i'll i'll jump in there how are you gonna how are you gonna to keep it. up the training when you when you're gonna be like a, a little <laughs> bit of a desk jockey all of a sudden well i i won't and that'll be the thing that'll be part of the, <laughs> yeah. the curve of the story is right like, you'll see me like just get a little bit softer. the skin suit with the cookies on it isn't fitting as well as it was <laughs> too many cookies yeah so i'll have to be like smarter with my training and that'll be part of the story of like i'm not doing stage races i don't need to train 30 hours a week anymore i can i think i could get away with 12 What's funny is like since I stopped trying to train for for a pro cycling, I like now I'm just training for like hill climb missions, and no mm-hmm. one's ever done that like at this level. And all of my power, like if you look at if you send it to the geeks, like I've gotten better, and I should go back to the pros. But like that's not that's not doesn't paint the full picture. But like yeah, all you have to be able to sustain up. like insane watts for like and you know forty five minutes. Right, that's what I've been doing, and like all of my watts have gone up since I was a pro. But like. If you ask me to, t- to climb two mountains hard in the same day as you would in the stage right. race, I'm screwed. <laughs> right. I'm, in, I'm in big trouble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you're not putting in the eight-hour, yeah. seven-hour rides and all that kind of stuff. Exactly. But by by like the metrics, it's I've gotten better. So we'll see if I can keep that going. At, you know, under under Casey and and Matt at Wasserman. And is Stra- like what is Strava's relationship to like what you're doing? Um, they, they I don't be- know. They uh, I'm I'm going to be doing like a featured kind of campaign with them but but they're not they're not sponsoring it at all um they're it i'm i guess i'm i'm using strava as a vehicle the same way anybody would use 
Instagram or something else. Right. So Strava's rolling out this sort of mini blogging platform okay. imminently, yeah. right? Like, are you part of your part? Are yeah, you, I'll be one of those. Are you one yeah, of those? I'm one of those. Look at yeah. That. What are the odds? Yeah, yeah. I just, <laughs> no, I've been talking to them. I think I have a call with them this week. Okay. So. Yeah. Like the video thing. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So I'm okay. excited about that. It's cool. Yeah. It sounds, it'll be fun. Yeah. So like I, like I said, I was off, I had to get off it for a long time. And then this year, <laughs> Like I just started training for, I haven't raced in like five years, but I'm going to do this crazy race in September. And so I was like, I'm going to get back on it and just be transparent wherever I'm at. This is mm -hmm. what I'm doing. And just not like the challenge for me is to not get caught up in it and just Interesting. And, yeah. and like not let it occupy like what I'm trying to accomplish and just let the chips fall as they may or whatever. Like that. And, and that's cool. Cause then I'm just like, it's whatever it is, whatever it is. People want to say I'm slow or whatever, you know, like yeah. I, don't, I don't care. And it's actually been really fun, you know, because right. there is a, there is such a beautiful community, you know, there of people that, you know, are interested in the things that we're interested in. So I've been enjoying it. Yeah. Of, of all the communities on, on social and on the internet, like the, the comment section is always like an ugly place, but I find Strava to be like shockingly encouraging, yeah. very low on the trolls. Like people are cool. And like when I, when I did, so my, my last day as a professional cyclist, I, cause contractually it goes through the end of the calendar year was, uh, December 31st last year. And I climbed Mauna Kea that day. So I was like, I'm going to end it like this. And I like climbed, it's the biggest, it's from, you dip your bike in the ocean and then you just race up this volcano to 14,000 something. Mm -hmm. And there's like a dirt road. It's like the craziest ride you can do. Super crazy. Yeah. And so I like, I went for that and. Parts of it are like barely rideable, right? Oh, I was running. I like was off my bike, like carrying my bike wow. up a thing. Like, uh, yeah, it ended up being this like amazingly epic deep day for me. Um, and I did it with, with Kevin Seistrom, the, the CEO of Instagram, mm -hmm. who like. It was, oh, it was cool you were, oh, you were, you were like, oh yeah. yeah. I followed cause he was, he was sharing that on Instagram yeah, like right. crazy and I was following that. I didn't realize that you were yeah, there. Oh, wow. I was, I was there. So like yeah, I did yeah, it yeah. and then I like, he, that was like the, the best day of his life. It was the best day of mine too. It's like, it's so cool. Cause like we, we did the same thing and we had the same experience and we're like so different people, but it was, it was like such a beautiful day. And like, I didn't even really know him, but now like there's this bond that will never <laughs> yeah. like, like we're like, we're best friends now and you can't take that. It's funny. He's a super cycling geek. Yeah. He's so cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, but he's, he's like in it for all the right reasons. And like that, I, that I hope to move into cycling the same way where at some point like Strava is just, it's an expression. It, it's like, it's a painting of here's, here's the route that I chose. Here's how I know the roads. Here's my neighborhood. And here's like, but it's also like with my legs and, and my, and my lungs, like how I'm expressing myself today. Um, so hope at some point, like I can't get KOMs anymore. And, and I think I'll just transition into that. Yeah. So you've never coached anybody. You're not like coaching's not your thing. I, I was like, you have to, if you're a low level pro cyclist, I uh -huh. coached at university of Florida when I was there, I coached the team for a year, but, but I, I stopped as soon as I could. I wasn't cut out for that. I'm not yeah. patient enough. So we, we got to wrap this up, but I, I always try to like end it with some, you know, imparting like some words of, of wisdom or encouragement to people out there that are listening that could kind of glean some, you know, insight from you. So what is it like, what do you think the biggest mistakes that the average sort of, you know, not weekend warrior, but like, you know, guy who wants to be guy or woman who wants to be competitive on a bike, like they're training for a triathlon or maybe a local crit or, you know, or whatever, 
what are the mistakes that you see? Like when you're out riding and you just see people out riding, you're like, why is that person doing that? If they only knew, you know what I mean? Because <laughs> right. I just know from like There's when I'm so riding much, around yeah. here and, you know, tons of people are wearing Garmin kits. Mm -hmm. But then every once in a while, like way off in the distance, you could barely make out that 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 guy's wearing a Garmin kit. And I can tell from, you know half a mile out i was like oh that that guy actually rides for garmin like i right. can just i can tell the difference you know between right. the guy who's wearing it on the weekend and the real the real deal sure i mean i think like i think there's a million ways to answer that the 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 advice that i would give the kind of the the fringe person the people that are doing it for fun but have goals is like think about what kind of ride what kind of workout got you started Think about like what made you fall into it in the first place. Like what, cause everyone's a cyclist before they're an athlete. Everyone just starts to ride bikes for fun. So for mm -hmm. me, that was like, I just liked going out and exploring and like riding a bike. You see the world at this pace that like when you're driving, you miss it. You know, you don't smell it. You don't, you know, you're not, you don't see what's going on when you're running. Like you can see it, but you don't cover a lot of ground. But when you're riding, you can really soak up a lot in a day. You can really feel what's going on. And and you can stop for, you know, pick up an apple or something. Mm. And so that was what I got out of it. And I found like, if you're training and you're staring at your power meter and you're doing your workout and your coach and all this stuff, like at some point it, it can start to feel like work if you're not careful. And so once in a while, like carve out, like think about what, what got you into it and carve that out for yourself and, and force yourself. So my coach would give me, um, this thing, soul rides, he called it. So like just today, go out and do what you feel like, just go for a ride. Yeah. And like. Don't uh, just leave the leave the yeah. power meter at and home. It's gonna it 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 reinvigorates everything and and at some point like that that definitely like extended my training and and it made life a lot easier and and at some point that's all I'm gonna do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think just you know finding a community you know of people sure. that enjoy doing it. I mean, we're lucky out here. There's such a culture of it, and you had mentioned earlier like just hanging out at Peddler's Fork, which is a restaurant nearby mm -hmm. that is you know it's an it's relatively new, but it's been it's kind of become like the hub of cycling culture yeah. in this area they, where everyone can kind of congregate. Right. They made this like this like beautiful restaurant in like Calabasas, like the most expensive neighborhood. And they just like made this bike dork Mecca with a little bike shop in the back and nice coffee. And, and that's, yeah, that's like the destination in the canyons. At some point, like you go for your, your four hour ride and you time it. So you're a peddler's fork somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, yeah. And you just, it's a great community. It's, and, but LA is, is full of them. There's, there's just so many yeah. great people here. Good talking to you, man. Yeah, it's been fun. We did it. Yep. Feel all right? <laughs> no, I'm so I'm, I'm all yeah. sweating. Is yeah, there anything no, we great. didn't talk about? Uh, no, man, it's fun. It was good, it was right? Good. Yeah, totally. All right, cool. So uh, if you're digging on Phil, you can find him at philthethrill.net. There it is. Right. Yep. And uh, pick up the book, Pro. Uh, uh, ask like, Pro ask, and then ask Draft Animals. And, and, yeah. yeah. Well, Draft Animals is coming. When that's in the fall. That'll right? be in October. Yeah. Apparently, yeah. You could, I just saw you could pre-order that on Amazon. Pre that, the right, cover so isn't even made. Pre-order that now. We're still and, arguing about the cover. Design. And where's the YouTube channel? Uh, it's I forget. Go to philathrill.net and it's there's a link on there. Worst retirement ever. Right. Is the name of it. So it's uh it's in there. Cool. And follow you on Strava and Instagram and yeah, Twitter whatever. and all yeah. those good places. Or don't. Yeah. I like, no, you're like, you're, you're fun on Twitter. Like, cause you're, you know, like you don't, the thing is like, you don't, you don't take any of this too seriously. Like you make it fun, you right. know, like you're approachable and, and, uh, and, and you have like this sort of sarcastic comedic flair that like runs through I appreciate how you it. talk about cycling. I think a lot of people like the, it's not to be taken seriously. And I think like more athletes could be served by 
just trying like a little bit harder as far as like the whole sport. And mm -hmm. when you tweet, you know, if, if, if somebody, if your sunglass sponsor says, Hey, can you give me a tweet? Don't be like, I like my sunglasses. Like try and say something funny, you know, yeah. like every, like there's, there's so many personalities and like, it's, it's, it's easy to do. Um, and I, and I think like, yeah, it's, it's more fun that way too. Yeah, cool. And if you want to geek out and go on a deep dive into cycling culture, you have your podcast. Yeah. The, yeah. The Peloton, it's, uh, the Peloton brief. Yep. Peloton brief podcast. Yeah. It's on, there's a link right? on my site there too. Yeah. Cool. All right, man. Awesome. Cool. Let's do it again soon. All right, sounds good. Thanks. Cool. I'd love to get on a bike with you sometime. Yeah, let's do that. You can deal with like a we really totally slow, be friends. We're neighbors really slow guy. <laughs> that's that's me. No, look, yeah. I don't I don't like riding hard anymore. I don't uh -huh. have to. All right, cool. Awesome, Sweet. man. Peace. Plants. Yeah, buddy, we did it. Great conversation. Do you guys like that? I hope you liked it. I got to tell you, I got a little bit of a brain fog right now. I came back from Sweden and that crazy experience, that ultra endurance experience, and threw myself right into another ultra, which is essentially trying to rewrite, create this second edition of Finding Ultra, which is due on September 21st. So since I've been back from Sweden, all I've been doing is locking myself in a room and writing. Uh, giving it the focus that I gave my preparation for Otillo, and I'm starting to go crazy. I've been waking up in the middle of the night. I've been riding around the clock, and I really think I need some fresh air. So sorry if I'm rambling right now. I'm doing the best I can. In any event, if you're into Phil, into his message, you want to check out more from him, fillthethrill.net. That's the website, fillthethrill.net, at Phil Gaiman, across all the social media platforms. Again, check out Phil's Fondo at philsfondo.com. That's October 15th coming here in Malibu, philsfondo.com to get more information and sign up and all that good stuff. Don't forget to pre-order his new book, Draft Animals, Living the Pro Cycling Dream Once in a While, and also his podcast, the Peloton Brief Podcast, Real Talent with Phil Gaiman. If you would like to support this show and my work, to share it with your friends and on social media, leave a review on iTunes, hit that subscribe button. And we have a Patreon set up for people that would like to contribute financially. And it warms my heart, everybody that has taken that extra step. I really appreciate it. Every once in a while, I used to say every week, every Thursday, I send out Roll Call, which is my weekly free email with five or six tools, tips, resources, articles I've come across, things that inspire me, things that I think are interesting that I want to share. Um, but I have been very uh, spotty in recent weeks in sending this out. Look, man, I'm trying to write a book. I only got so many hours in a day. I can't do everything. So I apologize for not being totally locked in on my schedule with this, but I do send this out essentially every week, most weeks, I would say. So if it sounds like something you'd be interested in, I love doing it. Uh, it's not a, you know, this is, there's no affiliate links in, the, in this or anything like that. It's just good information, stuff that uh, either I shared on Facebook and nobody noticed or stuff that I'm not sharing on social media and this is the only place to get it. So you can check that out by entering your email address in any of those email capture windows on my website, richroll.com. And when you're there, we also have signed copies of all our books, Finding Ultra, The Plant Power Way, This Cheese is Nuts. We have t-shirts, we have tech tees, and all kinds of other cool swag and merch. Swag or swag? Somebody told me it's swag. I've been saying swag, but I think it's swag. Uh, also, if you are feeling particularly generous, it would mean so much to me if you contributed to 
the spring, which is Charity Waters uh, subscription service that allows you to contribute a certain dollar amount every month to help people access clean water. You guys have been amazing in responding to this call ever since I put up my podcast with Scott Harrison. It's had a profound impact on um, not just uh, the audience, but on people that are now going to be enjoying fresh water for the first time. Over 250 of you have signed up for the spring. We've raised enough money to build, I think, five wells at this point, and I want to keep going. I got an email just the other day from a representative at Charity Water who said that uh, they just can't believe that that you guys are still signing up. When Scott does media, generally there's like a there's a bang, you know, there's a spark, and a bunch of people will sign up or donate, and then it kind of trails off. And what they're seeing over at Charity Water is that you guys keep contributing, you keep you keep signing up. There's more and more people joining the spring every week, and they're telling me that's unheard of. Like this is one of the most successful media appearances that Scott has made because of the response that you guys have have made. And so I thank you, all of these people that are now going to be enjoying water. I'm sure they thank you. And I would like to continue uh, the momentum here. What would it be like if we could build 10 wells instead of five? So if you got an extra five bucks, if you got an extra 10 bucks a month, 20 bucks, whatever you can afford, I want you guys to check out the spring and consider donating and it will make you feel great and it will significantly contribute to the betterment of humanity. And what's better than that, right? To learn more and to sign up, go to the spring by typing in this very specific URL, cwtr.org forward slash rich roll spring, cwtr.org forward slash rich roll spring. That link is up in my show notes as well, so you don't have to write it down if you're driving a car or you're on a treadmill or something like that. But I implore you to please explore this uh, opportunity for yourself and for others. I also want to conclude this podcast by thanking everybody who helped put it on, helped produce it. Jason Camiello, as always, for his amazing work on the audio engineering and production of the show, as well as his help compiling the show notes, creating the show notes, creating the website page. Sean Patterson for your help on graphics and theme music by Analemma. Thanks for the love, you guys. I appreciate it. I got to get this book done. I can turn it in on Thursday and then I'm going to be back to my normal self, or at least that's what I'm telling myself. Anyway, uh, I'll see you back here soon. Appreciate you. Have a great week. Make it count. Peace. Plants. Namaste. Yeah.